Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Good day, everyone, and welcome to our Bible study podcast. We are in a series called Living on the Precipice of Prophecy. And today, as part of that series, I'm finishing a four-part episode uh, segment on this mysterious figure that is called the Antichrist. Now, next week, I want to go on and tell you what the prophet Isaiah has to say about the coming battle of Armageddon, which, of course, is tightly related to today's topic. The Antichrist will lead the forces of the world in the battle of Armageddon to destroy Israel just before Jesus comes again. So we're going to look at all of that. It appears to me mysterious information, but it isn't as you study it over and over again in the Bible. The pieces fall into place. And at least to me, after all of these years of study, it seems relatively clear and very hopeful. Now, this series of podcasts is sponsored by my new book, The 50 Final Events in World History, the Bible's Final Words on on Earth's Last Days. I want to read just a little bit from the back cover of this book. You don't need to worry. God has got tomorrow. It's right on schedule. With all that is happening around the globe, it's hard not to wonder if these are the end times. Revelation tells us about the world's last days, but many of us find it too intimidating to understand, so we end up feeling stuck between daunting headlines and confusing prophecies. The 50 final events in world history demystifies the book of Revelation so you can embrace the hope and the assurance it offers. Well, this book is now available wherever you buy books. I have sought to make the book of Revelation simple enough for a middle schooler to understand. I've studied this book for almost half a century, and so I hope that you'll get a copy for yourself and maybe another for a friend. Consider it for your small group. It is the 50 final events in world history, a study demystifying the book of Revelation. Now, as I indicated, a good portion of the story of Revelation is dominated by this evil character that we often call the Antichrist. And for the last three podcast episodes, I've been telling you what the Bible says about him, his biblical biography, and let me review what we've learned so far. If you have missed those, you may want to go back and give them a listen, but at least I can now summarize for you what we have seen up to this point. The earliest clue about this man of evil is perhaps in the first prophetic verse in the Bible, which is Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord Almighty said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you shall strike his heel. Well, who is the seed of the woman, and who is the seed of the devil? Ultimately, the seed of the woman is the Messiah, 
and the seed of Satan ultimately is the Antichrist. So in embryonic form, maybe we have the final battle in world history foreseen in the very first prophecy in Genesis 3.15. We also perhaps see a forerunner to the Antichrist in the man Nimrod, who shows up in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8. And then the prophet Isaiah refers to Antichrist in Isaiah 16, verses 4 and 5, saying, The oppressor will come to an end, and destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love a throne will be established. In faithfulness a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. So the Antichrist would be the oppressor and the aggressor who will come to his end because a throne will be established on which the son of David will sit as he brings justice to the world. And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is a clear description of the Battle of Armageddon in which this tyrant, who in this particular section is called Gog, G-O-G, will rule over an empire called Magog and will gather the armies of the world against Israel. I have an entire article in the appendix of the 50 final events in world history about this. You can also read about this battle in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, near the end of the Old Testament. But now, it's the prophet Daniel who gives us the most detailed information so far about this man of lawlessness. So in Daniel, if I can summarize what we saw last time, this Antichrist will emerge out of a 10-member global confederation. He will create a global empire that will resemble the ancient empires of Babylon and Rome. He will make a peace treaty with Israel, but will break the treaty halfway through its seven years. He will have a vile tongue that lashes out at God. He will be a fierce-looking ruler, a master of intrigue. He will do as he pleases. He will cast off submission to any god other than himself, and he will oppose everything that is divine. He will worship military power. He will place his own image in the rebuilt Jewish temple, and a man to be worshipped, and his image will be the abomination of desolation that will desecrate the temple. He will be worse than Antiochus the Fourth, who brutalized Israel between the Testaments, and he will be defeated, but not by human power. That's in part what Daniel tells us about this man. Now, the next ma major passage uh, about the Antichrist, you'll find it in the writings of Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a critical passage on this subject. Paul said, Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is exactly what we saw in Daniel. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of 
displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. We went into that passage a great deal last time, and it's so very important. Now, it's the Apostle John in his epistles of First and Second John who calls this man, which Paul called the man of lawlessness, John calls him the Antichrist. And according to John, while the Antichrist himself is coming, his spirit, the spirit of the Antichrist, is already at work in this world. And now that brings us to the book of Revelation and to the material that I prepared for my book, The 50 Final Events in World History, in which I want to share with you here, at least in part. I believe that there are two primary presentations of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. The first time we see him is before he actually transforms into the supernaturally diabolical Antichrist that we see later. When he first appears on the stage of history, he seems to be a powerful human military leader who is on a crusade and who seems to be a champion and a charismatic leader. So Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, which opens up the sequence of events that makes up the tribulation, says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say, in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. I believe that some cataclysmic occurrence is going to happen in this world that drives the earth towards a one-world government, and this man is going to rise up like a powerful champion and fight the wars necessary to try to unite the world under himself as a, a, as a false savior or as a deceiver, as someone who apparently has come to save the world but instead is going to be its greatest enemy. Well, by the time we get to Revelation chapter 12, we're in the middle of these seven years of tribulation. And in this chapter, Satan is thrown out of heaven. He declares war against the world, and he especially comes against the Jewish people. At some point, this man from Revelation chapter 6, the warrior on the white horse, will be assassinated, or he will appear to be assassinated. The world will mourn his death, but then to the utter shock and surprise of everyone, he will rise from the dead, or he will appear to rise from the dead. Now, whether his death and resurrection are real and demonically done or faked, I don't know. But remember, he is the anti-Christ. He wants to replicate what Jesus did, and thus his perceived death and resurrection. Well, with this resurrection, he will, or maybe his apparent resurrection, he will be fully possessed and empowered and inflamed and energized by Satan in the fullest ways possible. And at this moment, I believe he really becomes, he is transformed into the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the deceiver, the ultimate seed of the devil, the final Nimrod. So chapter 13, verse 1 of Revelation picks up the story. 
it says the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, in the previous chapter, Revelation 12, the dragon is clearly identified as Satan, that old serpent. There's no question about that. So it says that the, the devil here, Satan, was standing here on the horizon of the earth, on the shore of the earth, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. This is the Leviathan, the Antichrist. He is described as a beast in the book of Daniel, and he shows up here as a beast in the middle of the Great Tribulation, the new improved version of the man on the white horse, as it were, the world champion who came riding in to take control of everything. But now, look at how his description reflects what we saw in the book of Daniel. Verse 1 continues that this beast had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horn, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like those of a lion. All of these images are from the book of Daniel, and they describe the various empires that Daniel foresaw. So this man represents the culmination of history. He becomes the head of a ten-member confederation. And the last part of verse 2 is very interesting. It says, The dragon, that is Satan, gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. In other words, just as God the Father delegated authority to God the Son, Jesus Christ, so the devil delegates power and authority to the beast. In verse 3, we have this intimation, which later will become more clear, of his apparent assassination and resurrection. It says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The result is, the whole earth was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The world is mesmerized by this supernaturally diabolical but charismatic man. In verse 5, as in almost every other passage about this person, his arrogant speech and powerful mouth are described. It says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. The reign of this Antichrist will be the final three and one-half years of great tribulation. Verse 6 says, It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, referring, I believe, primarily to the state or to the nation of Israel. Do you remember how we said that in Daniel chapter 9, this ruler will make a seven-year covenant with Israel and then break it in the middle of this period? This evil man will come to Jerusalem, will erect his own image in the temple and demand to be worshipped by the Jews. When they refuse, he will make up his mind to kill and destroy every last one. That's the Battle of Armageddon. 
And this battle is described repeatedly in the book of Isaiah, as we'll look at in the future, and in Ezekiel 38 and 39, as I wrote about in the appendix of the 50 final events in world history, and in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. This is the three-and-a-half-year campaign against Israel, the Battle of Armageddon. Verse 7 continues, This beast was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who is slain from the creation of the world. Now, we want to open another aspect of this, so hold on to your hat. In the second part of Revelation chapter 13, we have a third character who shows up to help the Antichrist, and he is called the beast out of the earth, and he's also called here the false prophet. So what we see assembling is a diabolical anti-trinity. The devil is the anti-father, the beast out of the sea is the anti-son, and this beast out of the earth is like the anti-Holy Spirit. Chapter 13 of Revelation and verse 11 says, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do for Christ? Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and his great goal is to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit's great goal is to glorify Christ, who died and rose again, and to proclaim his praise to the earth and to its inhabitants. The Spirit can empower great miracles, and when he came to earth at Pentecost, it was like fire coming down from heaven to earth in full view of the people. So this false prophet will do a similar sort of thing. He will be a kind of anti-Holy Spirit. And now we come to John's description of the famous abomination of desolation, which we have already looked at in the book of Daniel. It is mentioned by the lips of Jesus in Matthew 24, and as we saw, it is described in the letters of Paul, especially 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So, here we have verse 14 of Revelation chapter 13. Because of the signs it was given, that is, this anti-Holy Spirit, because of the signs it was given to perform on behalf of the first beast, that is, the Antichrist, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and to cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight 
calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Now that's one of the most famous and mysterious predictions in the Bible, but here is what I think it means. The false prophet will register people as part of the Antichrist's one-world economy and everyone having an ID that is printed or tattooed or implanted in or on their skin will allow them to engage in daily commerce. Now, Satan wants to be 777, the perfect trinity, but he can never be more than 666, which is the number of mankind. God made Adam and Eve on the sixth day of creation. Seven is a divine number. It's a number of perfection. It is repeated constantly through the book of Revelation. But Satan falls short of that. The Antichrist falls short. The anti-Holy Spirit falls short. God the Father is perfect, symbolized by the number seven. Six is the number of humanity. The false trinity can never be 777. They fall short. They are 666. And apparently there is some symbol or logo of this evil trinity that will be implanted or imprinted on the hands and foreheads of their followers. But the tribulation saints will never agree to bear this mark of the beast. Well, Revelation chapters 14, 15, and 16 describe the terrible events that happen under the reign of terror of the Antichrist. I explain these in the 50 final events in world history. But for now, let's skip right on to Revelation chapter 16, verse 16. It says, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This valley of Armageddon, north of Jerusalem, is the forward operating base, the headquarters for the Antichrist and the armies of the world as they wage their three-and-a-half-year war against Israel and Jerusalem. Well, Revelation 17 talks about the collapse of the Antichrist's empire, and Revelation 18 describes the fall of his capital city of Babylon, and then chapter 19 presents the return of Christ, and when the Lord comes again, he will instantly win the victory without a shot being fired. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, Revelation 19 verses 11 through 20 say, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He, tries, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his throne and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all of the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, 
generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Verse 19. Then I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the kings of the world, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this brings to a dramatic and inexorable end the wicked career of the man of lawlessness, the ultimate dictator, the final despot in history. This is his death sentence. This is his biblical obituary in Revelation 19. So who is this Antichrist? We cannot know this man's name right now. At this very moment, he may be studying in some university or fighting in some army. He may be rising through the ranks. Perhaps he hasn't been born yet. But with the acceleration of global disasters and the ensuing dangers of worldwide catastrophic terrors, it seems to me that we are hurtling towards the moment when he will be revealed. So let me just close with this. Why is all of this important? Well, first, it helps us understand the patterns of history. I grew up right after World War II, and I recall seeing pamphlets from the 1930s making a very good case that Mussolini was the Antichrist or that Hitler was the Antichrist. I still have some of those old pamphlets in my file, and the logic behind them is very good. I mean, in the 1930s, you can make a very strong case that Hitler was the Antichrist. Well, did these writers get it wrong? Yes and no. Hitler was not the ultimate Antichrist, but he fits the profile. And when you study history, you see a recurring pattern going all the way back to Nimrod. Evil is not accidental and history is not haphazard. The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world right now and the contractions leading to the return of Christ are getting closer. Secondly, understanding about the Antichrist helps us understand the progress of evil. Now, according to the Darwinian theory of the evolution of society, morality should be getting better. Progress should be unfolding. The world should be getting finer and growing stronger. And yet one look at the headlines tells us the exact opposite. The world is getting worse. And ladies and gentlemen, we are living now at a time in history for the first time ever when history could extinguish itself with a push of a few buttons or the breaking of a few test tubes. The Bible says that in the last days perilous times will come that will be like the days of Noah and the unfolding sinfulness of humanity is paving the way for the Antichrist. Third, stunning this subject helps us to understand the power of courage. Just as the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world since the days of Adam and Eve, so the spirit of Christ has been in the lives of men and women who have stood up for him. Think of Enoch in the days of Noah, of Moses in the days of Pharaoh, of Esther 
in the days of Haman, of the Maccabees in the days of Antiochus IV, of Peter and Paul in the days of Nero, Luther in the days of Leo, and on down to Bonhoeffer in the days of Hitler. It's our privilege and duty to stand firm for the gospel and to speak truth to power and truth to culture and to be ambassadors for Christ in these last days, whatever the cost. And finally, studying this subject in the Bible helps us to understand and to appreciate the preeminence of Christ. The career of the Antichrist, as dramatic and diabolical as it is, will collapse in a moment of time when Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his millions of heavenly hosts. The forces of evil will perish in a moment, vanquished by the splendor of our Lord's coming and by the words of his mouth. Evil is not forever. Suffering is not perpetual. Sin is not enduring. And death is not invincible. There's coming a day in which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and therein lies all of the hope we need and all of the hope and joy we will ever need. For Jesus Christ is victor. Well, next week, we'll thumb through the book of Isaiah, as I said, looking at the Battle of Armageddon as we continue to stand on the precipice of prophecy and look at what the Bible says about days to come. In the meantime, please check out my book, The 50 Final Events in World History, wherever you get your books. Thank you so much for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. Remember to check out my website, robertjmorgan.com, for all kinds of resources. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing is by Courtney Warner. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler. Music by Elijah Rowe. Thanks for listening, my friends, and may God be with you until we meet again.